Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. What's been the moment where you've really questioned yourself or found the toughest moment? <laughs> Oh, my goodness. There are tough things that happen every week. For me, it's always the human element. Hello, and welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. I'm Claire Hatton. And I'm Greta Thomas. And we're on a mission to help you achieve your goals. We're all about sharing the secrets of the world's most innovative and pioneering successful women. Hear their uplifting stories and practical advice right here. Yes, right here. And if you're enjoying this podcast, then why not sign up for our newsletter at hello at don'tstopusnow.co and keep listening for this week's latest episode. Hello there and welcome to another episode of Don't Stop Us Now, this week featuring the wonderful entrepreneur, Bobby Marlab. And we had a lot of fun recording this interview face-to-face with Bobby a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, we sure did. And then frankly, in these worrying COVID-19 times, Bobby's humility and humor are even more appreciated. So thank you, Bobby. Yeah, they so are. So on COVID-19, you know, these are really difficult times for everyone. And if we have one message, it would be to take it seriously. If not for yourself, then for others. Yeah, absolutely. And we do hope, though, you are taking care of yourselves as well as looking out for each other. And particularly if you know any elderly or vulnerable folk, now is the time. Now, if you're feeling a bit lonesome because you're working from home and doing what they're saying with social distance, etc., then look out for our next Zoom check-in and catch up. Yeah, and to stay in the loop about when the next live check-in will be, subscribe at our website or look on social media. Now back to Bobby. Bobby Marlab founded and leads a constantly evolving content marketing and communications agency. It's been running for more than 20 years. Much more recently, she also co-founded the blossoming Australian arm of Mentor Walks, a brilliant initiative. Indeed. Bobby's business has won multiple awards and accolades, as has she. She also has some fascinating insights and perspectives on women in business and being an entrepreneur. Thanks particularly to the role she plays with Mentor Walks and from being a juror on the prestigious international Cartier Women's Initiative Awards for Entrepreneurs. Yeah, she has some great perspectives and you'll hear those. And also in this episode, you'll hear how it felt to grow up with a very high-profile mother who was also a very big feminist, why Bobby thinks leaders need to act like a hammerhead shark. Yes, you heard that right. Love that one. (laughs) What it was that made her walk into her company one day and say, everything changes from today, and the formative experience that taught Bobby to think bigger. So without further ado, enjoy this episode with the effervescent and wise Bobby Marlab. Bobby Marlab, welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. Delighted to be here. Well, we are too. It's so great to be sitting here in Sydney. And a question we like to kick off with for 
all of our guests is, how do you describe what you do today in a couple of sentences? I describe myself as a founder and builder. Right now, I have two main focuses. One is Marlab, which is a communications and content marketing agency that is a 20-something-year-old business. And the other is Mentor Walks, which is a walk-and-talk mentoring program for women that's a fast-growing, scaling, not-for-profit. Yes, and in fact, all three of us have just come from a stunning Sydney morning where we were mentors and walking with groups of women who come with a burning question. It's such a great concept. It's the best it? thing. Yeah, it is terrific. And this morning we had about 80 women who were walking and talking and helping each other with their careers. So really quite something in the beautiful Sydney sunshine. Exactly. Well, we're going to learn a little bit more about how you came to be involved in co-founding uh, Mentor Walks here in Australia and beyond soon by the sounds of it in a little while. But we'd love to take you right back now. You know, what was your childhood like? I grew up in a really unusual household because I grew up with a mother that had a high public profile. She was one of the founders of the women's electoral lobby in Australia, and she was a very visible feminist at a time in the 70s when, you know, they call it the second wave of feminism was really gaining momentum. And so I had grew up in a very unusual household where my father really was the quieter one of our parents, and my mother was really very well known. And so there were a lot of role reversals in our family. I have a terrific dad who's one of those great men who stand behind great women, who is terrific at the things he does as well. But the construct of our family was different to all the people I went to school with because they tended to have mums who weren't working or if they were working, they were still doing all the household things and fathers, much more traditional households. So we were different. And how did that make you feel at school. It made me feel different. I remember once the headmistress who was terribly scary coming up to me and she saw I had a hole in my the jumper and the elbow and she said to me, I'm sure your mother wouldn't let you come to school like that. And I thought to myself, gee whiz, that's not on my mother's agenda to notice things like that, you know, because <laughs> she was busy out there changing the world, you know. So it was a different kind of thing. And my friends, they used to bring me vitamin C pills and their mums used to put extra vanilla slices and things in their lunchbox for me. <laughs> um, so where, you know, we used to have this great thing where my mum would buy buckets of Kentucky Fried Chicken <laughs> and keep it in the fridge and we'd just put it in our lunchbox. So, you know, it was just a little bit different. And very pragmatic. <laughs> Yes, oh, very pragmatic, sense. yes. Were you a feminist at a, an early age? Were you waving the flag as well? Or was it sometimes, as you find with children, the opposite for a while? And It wasn't the opposite. It was just always part of the way that we grew up, that everyone was equal and everyone had a voice. And did you feel any pressure from your mother being such a big figure? No, I don't, I don't think I felt pressure. But what came through um, and has always been a theme in our family is about how you can contribute to the world, how you can make the world a better place. My mother was a refugee from Nazi-occupied Austria. You know, she was spent a year hidden on a floor in a hotel. So wow. that experience does shape the way you approach the world. And I think the tradition of philanthropy and addressing disadvantage has just been part of the DNA of where I've come from. Yeah, it's a wonderful gift that's come from a very hard place. Yes, but I think it also comes from beyond that. I think it's traditions over generations. Mm. 
Yeah. And, and as you said, that's a big part of your life. And I think it's becoming a, a bigger part of your life, which we'll explore in a moment. So you were at school and then I think you went on to university. Mm-hmm. Is that right? What did you study? I did an arts degree at Melbourne University, an honours degree in history. I really love the history of ideas. And in my fourth year thesis, I did the history of the Melbourne City Square, which had been a story of compromise and a really bad result. And I was interested in the use of public spaces that led me to look at that as a case study. But what it also um, led me to was it was an oral history. So at a very young age, I found myself interviewing people like Norm Gallagher, who ran the Builders Labors Federation, and a young architectural firm who'd won the design for the Melbourne City Square at that time. And it gave me a huge love for interviewing people. And really, it's what led me into being a journalist. How long were you a journalist for? I think about four years. Becoming a journalist was a fantastic learning for me because after university, I went overseas for a year or so. I spent a year living in New York. My father is a New Yorker and I wanted to get to know his side of the family that all comes from Iraq. It was a fantastic experience for me. And I also look like them. They're very dark and so so am I. So getting to know my New York relatives was fantastic. And it was also about understanding where I came from. I would have stayed there, except my father said to me, it's time you come home. And I was really having trouble getting a serious job. So I came home. I worked for a marketing agency for about a year and a half, but I'd always wanted to be a journalist and they were hard to get graduate cadetships. So I used every connection I had to get freelancing jobs around Melbourne at the time and wrote for The Age and various other things. And finally, the business editor of the Melbourne Herald gave me a graduate cadetship in the business section, and that was in boom times in the late 80s. And it was more fun than you can possibly imagine. It was incredible. I can imagine. Mm. I can imagine. Mm. And so you were a journalist for about four years, mm-hmm. and did you then go in to start Marlab? I didn't start Marlab to 1987, and in the interim, I went to the launch of the Sunday Age newspaper in Melbourne. And at that time, there were two Sunday newspapers launching, one by Fairfax, one by News Corporation. And Fairfax, for people who are listening to this that aren't in Australia, was a, you know, has been a, a massive media organisation in, in Australia until quite recently. Neither organisation really wanted to launch a Sunday newspaper. They did it as competitive strike against both of them. And The Age was one of the biggest newspapers in the country. It still is a morning newspaper. And The Sunday Age had a different masthead and we didn't know whether if the readers would be the same as The Daily Age. And so it was an extraordinary experience that has actually underpinned the philosophy of Marlab since the beginning about knowing your audience because it was very difficult to know who your reader was and it's very difficult to write or create content or communicate when you don't know who your audience is. How did they solve the problem? Well, I solved my own problem. They obviously had the data and had the circulation people and all of those kind of things. But I was sent to cover a story in Pentridge at jail on a Saturday morning. And I went with the photographer to the gates of Pentridge. And the guy at the gate said to us, you're from the Sunday Age. I love your newspaper. And I said, you're my reader. I know who I'm writing for. And so in Marlab, that idea of having that really, really clear sense of audience and knowing them 
them not just from the data but from the human connection, being able to see them and understand their world is really a core way of the way we work. And I think it makes a difference to creating really fantastic content and communications. And what was that catalyst that made you jump from working for others to starting MarLab? I worked for a company called Text Media for about five years. When I joined them, they had about seven people. The guy that started that company is really talented and super smart and he'd been the editor of one of the newspapers I'd worked with and I saw them as really innovative and I wanted to work with really smart, innovative people and I knocked on their door until they gave me a job. When I started, they had about seven people. When I left, they had about 300. And I worked with them at a time of my career where they were flying and I was ready to fly. So I went with, worked with them in Melbourne. I went to Canberra to set up a division for them. And then I came to Sydney to lead part of their business. And it was a really, really great learning journey. And it was a journey as much about what not to do as what to do. Because when you're in such a fast growing business, a lot of things happen quickly and some of them are great and some of them are not so great. So we all know that you learn as much from mistakes as from the things that go right. So it was a really, really great background to have in order to start my own business. And briefly, what was one of the biggest lessons you learned there in terms of <laughs> what not to do or even mistakes that they, might be um, even more interesting? They didn't set up, um, their financial systems were incomplete for, at the beginnings. They had an accountant who was very junior who stuffed um, invoices in his desk so people didn't get paid, right? And freelancers didn't get paid. And it sounds like a small thing, but it's a massive thing. So just when I started MarLab, having systems and structures so that A, we knew where everything was and we people were paid really promptly was part of it. So it's a small thing, but it makes a big difference. Yes, systems and processes for sure. Mm. So sounds like you were flying, as you say. You had this amazing role to grow with a growing business. Mm -hmm. What made you really want to jump ship and start your own? Well, I'd always known at some point I was going to start my own business. There was a confluence of things that happened there that were unexpected and not particularly great, and I left. And I spent a handful of months working out what I was going to do. And when I was thinking it's time for me to do my own thing, I went to see someone who'd been a client years previously. And I said to her, and I'm so grateful for her, and I've told her this, I said to her, I'm thinking my, of starting my own business. What do you think? And she said, I can't think of a single reason why you shouldn't. And it was those words that I thought, okay, I'll go and do it. And, you know, I was coming from a position of not having a lot of confidence, but just thinking it was time. And how did you get through that sort of imposter syndrome, that lack of confidence that you may have been feeling, like literally starting the business? I actually don't know. I just did it. And, you know, I come from a background where most people in my family have started businesses. I knew that I wouldn't starve. So I was really fortunate that if it didn't work, I knew that I would have a roof over my head and food on the table. And I so admire people who do it when they don't have that behind them because it is scary. So I came from a background where starting your own businesses was what we all did. But I also had a fantastic mentor who is still a great mentor in, in, in my world. I think my huge belief in what mentoring gives to humans comes 
a large part from my experience with Barbara Kale. Barbara is a lifelong friend. She's the woman that started Chief Executive Women in Australia. And she has a similar background to me that she was a journalist and a publisher and an entrepreneur. And we had met at a dinner where Rupert Murdoch was speaking and we'd become friends. And when I moved to Sydney, we stayed in contact. And when I started Marlab, I rented a office in her building from her. I called it the pizza oven office because it had exposed brick walls. And, you know, there was just me, a desk, a brick of a mobile phone and a fax machine, if you can believe Mm -hmm. it. And no clients at all. And I remember one day sitting there thinking about the word income income, that means in it comes, I have to make it come in. And, you know, when you play with words, they become silly and silly, but that word income has always stayed with me because if you are leading a company, your job is to make sure you've got the business and you've got the income and you can play your team and you can grow. So she has been a force in my world for asking really magnificent questions. She's been someone who I could go to any time and say, what do you think about this? And she's still a really wonderful human being in my world. Yeah, they're so powerful mentors, aren't Mm -hmm. they? And so it's clearly been a journey, Marlab. How long have you been going now? Since 1997, so we're in 23rd year. Wow. We're 22 and a half years 22 old. 22 and a half That's years really old. That's really something. That really is something. Congratulations. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And, you know, there must have been many points that you've had to pivot and adapt and and change as the landscape has changed and as the business has changed. Digital. and yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. What would have been some of the most challenging times for you through that period? Oh, uh, look, Running a business is challenging because every day is problems and, you know, you guys run run businesses. We all, we all know that. When I started Marlab, it was pre-digital and clearly the world has changed and media is one of the most disrupted sectors and was early to disruption as it certainly well. certainly was. I've always been really curious and I think that's part of the DNA of a journalist and I think curiosity is really one of the values in our company. And one of the things about being curious is that you're constantly looking around you saying what if, what could be, what should be, what am I seeing, what am I not seeing, what questions aren't I asking. And this is a horrible analogy but often I see myself like a hammerhead shark that I've got eyes at the side and I'm making sure I've got peripheral vision And so always being quite diverse and eclectic in what I read, listen to, talk to, what I look for, I think has been a really important thing to us, not only staying current, but always having a foot in in the future. And so... When digital, we had the first, you know, the dot-com boom and... Um, in the late 90s. In the late 90s. Yeah. And I'd been on the experience of an afternoon paper that had died because no one read afternoon papers anymore. And I'd learned the lesson that if there's a worldwide trend, you know, you're not going to change it. <laughs> you need to understand it and, and see how it affects you. And so... When digital was gaining pace, I started reading avidly and a friend of mine started a business book group where we were only reading about digital issues and we were reading um, all the people out of the US that were leading in this area and we would meet once a month and we would talk about specifically what does it mean to you and your business and it was hugely useful to all of us because it meant we got to the questions early and I took myself to a course that a group of Americans were running about how they came to Australia. It was really intense. It was really expensive. And I went in 
in with my head facing one way and I came out with my head facing the other way. It was as extreme as that. Gosh. And I came back to the business and I said, from today, everything changes. And these are all the areas we need to know. And there were job titles we'd never heard about. It was all about search engine optimization and keywords and indexing and all these things. And nothing was ever the same after that. And what have you learned? Because so many people are being disrupted as we speak and trying to adapt. If you had to distill those kind of learnings of how to successfully keep abreast and change, Mm -hmm. what would you say are key learnings? A key learning is that you have to have in your senior team people who believe in the change. There's a famous story at Fairfax, which is the Australian media organisation that pretty much doesn't exist anymore, that one of their board members threw their newspaper on the table and said, if you're telling me no one's going to read newspapers in hard copy anymore, I'll eat my hat. And of course... I heard that. He's eating his hat now, isn't he? He's eating his hat. I think asking the right questions is really a very important attribute to have. And even a right question can sometimes be... I don't know the questions, so what might they be? You know, I really think that asking questions is important. That program was obviously incredibly powerful. The course that you talked about, you know, the Americans that came over must have been so galvanizing. But if you think about that journey and the journey of the 23 years, what's been the moment where you've really questioned yourself or found the toughest moment? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness. There are tough things that happen every week. For me, it's always the human element. It's very unusual for me to not love my team. I genuinely really like the people I work with, but sometimes there needs to be change. So the toughest things are always around decisions with people that impact their lives or, or whatever. That's always it. But I, it's hard. There are so many <laughs> things that could answer your question. I don't know where to start. I love the humanity in your response, Bobby. That's wonderful. How about, it can be very lonely when you're running your own business mm-hmm. and you've got you know, people, decisions in particular to make, but generally, how did you find connection? So for 10 years, I joined something called the Executive Connection. And I really encourage people who who have their own businesses to find a community of people they can talk to. And it can be lots of different things. There are lots of different organizations people can join that help them sort out their business problems. There's entrepreneurs organization, all kinds of things globally that do that. But it was always a place with people with really diverse experience who talked about their issues. You understood that you weren't going insane and that other people were finding these things too. But also wise counsel, but people to get resources from. You know, if you needed an immigration lawyer or you needed advice on a particular issue, you could reach out to someone in that group and they would help you. And I think that that's been a theme in my whole life is cultivating people who I could go to when I had a question and why to me it's so important to offer that myself because it's been so instrumental in my own journey. I couldn't agree more. You know, we all need people. And and then tell us a little bit about the EY program Mm. and and the fact that, as I understand it, you almost didn't even apply. Yeah. So I was invited to a, a lunch for entrepreneurial women and the woman running the Entrepreneurial Winning Women program that EY does sat with us and she gave us a brochure and she said, this is the first year we're running this in Asia Pacific. It's been running in the US for about eight years. We select 15 women across Asia Pacific each year who are ready to scale and we are looking for applicants. Here's the brochure. 
And I sat with it on the corner of my desk probably for seven months. And occasionally I'd look at it and think, oh, no, I'm not, my business isn't big enough. I'm not, you know, they're looking for really heavy hitters, this sort of stuff, and I didn't apply. And finally, two weeks before Christmas in 2014, I filled it in and I sent it in. And I was on a flight down to Melbourne. It landed and I turned my phone on and there was a message from them saying, we'd be delighted to offer you a place on this program. It was a sliding door moment. The first thing that happened was I went to Singapore for a conference where the 15 of us from Asia, all parts of Asia, and a few from Australia and New Zealand were... And I sat on a table next to a woman from China who had a site for luxury cars. And I said to her, how many visitors do you get to your site? And she said, my English isn't very good. Let me write it down. And she said, write down six million. And I said, oh, is that six million a year? And she said, no, it's six million a day. (laughs) And I threw myself back in my chair and I thought, okay, here you go. So I've met extraordinary women through it. It's given me great global connections. But part of the purpose of the program is to help you think bigger. And it certainly did that. But you nearly didn't at all, did you? Seven I months or so of that brochure yeah. on your desk. Yeah. And what was really holding you back? It's all about confidence. And for women, isn't it You know, always about confidence? Absolutely. So often. It was about thinking I wasn't big enough, I wasn't clever enough, all the things I wasn't enough. And rather than just thinking, go for it. And I have um, one of the things that I talk about a lot now is showing up because I think that you have to show up. You have to go and meet the people. You have to show up in person. You have to go the distance. I know because I've been there myself how difficult it is when you've got young kids to get the time and to do it. But really it's from the people you meet in person that make the biggest changes in your world. And one of the things I'm talking about a lot is about how networking is not a dirty word. Networking is building your community and it is so important because they're the people you learn from, the people that you can talk to if you need advice. Unexpected things happen when you connect with people. Absolutely. I just love that showing up. One curious question quickly though, when you did get into that group of Asia Pacific women in the EY program that you nearly didn't apply for, How did you feel? Did you ever feel that you weren't ready, you weren't big enough, or did you realise? No, all the time. I felt that all the time, and it's probably only recently that I don't really feel that anymore, and that's five years later. But all the time, you're surrounded by these extraordinary humans who are building these astonishing businesses. These are these unbelievable people, and yeah, it is just joy being in their company. That's so fantastic. I bet they say the same of you, by the way. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, I think that's the thing, isn't it? Is that you're always comparing yourself to these people, but they're also doing the same thing. So everybody feels that level of sort of discomfort. Look, we're all human and we're all fragile. And anyone who says they're not is covering up. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Well, talking about amazing women and amazing people, you now have the wonderful role 
I'm a little bit envious, actually, of being on the Cartier Women's Initiative Program. Mm-hmm. Or you're a judge for it. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. So I've been a judge for the last two years and are now an ambassador, which I'm very proud to be. The Cartier Women's Initiative Awards are about female empowerment through entrepreneurship and through solving problems. And what that community does is that there are six regions. There are three what they call laureates or finalists chosen from each region. The winner of each region wins a hundred thousand US dollars coaching time at INSEAD. It's a remarkable program. But the other two finalists also get thirty thousand US dollars and some of those things as well. It gives them access to venture capital. I think the figures are something like um, under three percent of venture capital worldwide goes to women and so they're opening those doors too but it is an extraordinary program yeah it just sounds like an incredible program it is let's talk a little bit about mental walks because as you've said mental walks and mentoring has been really important in your life and you had this opportunity I think it was you met with Michelle Garneau who has been on our podcast and who had started mental walks in Shanghai and Beijing and Hong Kong. So what made you think that you wanted to start mental walks and bring it into Australia? Sometimes you see such a good idea that you think I've just got to do it, right? And I'm a just got to do it kind of person. Adina Jacobs, who's the co-founder in Australia, and I, who she is also um, an alumni of the EY Entrepreneur Winning Women program, we were at a conference in Shanghai where Michelle Garno was also there and had spoken and she'd mentioned mental walks. We were very lucky because a day after the conference, um, Michelle was running it in Shanghai and Adina and I, we looked at each other and said, oh, let's go. Why, why wouldn't we, right? So we hopped in a cab very early in the morning and we went to this park in the middle of God knows where and we went on a mental work. We were both in different groups and Michelle was magnanimous and fantastic and I had a fantastic experience. Adina's experience actually wasn't so great, but the power of the concept was really evident and I can remember the red gates of the park and we walked towards it and we looked at each other and said, this is fantastic, let's do it. And we did. Two months later, we launched in Sydney. We talked to Michelle and she said, absolutely, how can I help you? And she's always been fantastic. And we took it from there and we just did it. That's incredible. I mean, it's not like you weren't busy enough. No, but I like being busy and sometimes you're compelled. Yeah. I was compelled. Yeah. And what have you learned about the process of taking something that's just a gut instinct and putting it into action as a result of mental walks? What I've learned is if you surround yourself with great people and you have a great partner to work with, so Adina and I have very, very complementary skills, we are incredibly culturally aligned and the multiplier factor when you're working with other really, really able people to get something done is so powerful. And it's been interesting in contrast to the Marlab business that I have basically spearheaded and driven myself versus working with a fantastic co-founder on Mental Walks. The multiplier effect of what you can achieve with other great people by your side that you have profound respect for is really stunning. 
And so Mentor Walks is now in how many cities around Australia? We're in seven cities around Australia. We're about to take it to New Zealand this year, starting in July. We're in capital cities, but we're also in some regional areas, including Geelong and Wollongong. Um, We're in Canberra, in Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane. We will be in every capital city in Australia by the end of the year. And we've had, I think to date, about 2,500 women participate. It's such a great initiative. And for those who aren't familiar, women sign up, they come with a burning question. And in groups of two or three, you get allocated a, a female mentor and you simply walk around, if it's nice weather, the park. And in Sydney, it happens to be around the water and the opera house and the botanic gardens for one hour. And you explore each person's burning question. It's an amazing initiative. With Marlab, your business, you've actually stepped back, if I understand it right now, from the day-to-day operational, but Mm -hmm. still seeing, overseeing the strategic. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? What's next for Bobby? Well, I am getting enormous joy out of building mentor walks and taking it to new countries. And what we're about there is making mentoring accessible to women everywhere to accelerate positive change. And that gives me enormous satisfaction. I am loving my role at Marlab, which is very focused on strategy. And I think my role as a leader is to create a place for other people to thrive and succeed. And I can do that in lots of different ways. But I think that very much that's my role at Marlab to help set the strategy and provide the value system and the ideas where all these incredibly talented, creative people will do their very best work. But what I'm not doing anymore is on the day-to-day detail of it. Someone else is doing that. And what that lets me do is spend time thinking about where else I can make a contribution and accelerate positive change. And that's the thing I'm thinking about a lot at the moment. What a joy. What a joy. Yeah. And what a journey. And And what what a a journey. journey. Yeah. How are you going to go about that journey of thinking about those things? I am um, talking and reading, um, going to as many things and really doing what I've done my whole life, which is exposing myself to as many diverse and interesting and different, you know, not insanely different, but different experiences. And I'm at the beginning of that and we'll see where it goes. So I've got so much to do with Marlab and with Mentor Walks, but I'm trying to keep enough space for this exploration and to explore and to learn and to see where else I can make a difference. If you had to give advice to your 30-year-old self, what would that advice be? Oh, don't worry so much. Oh my God. The amount of time I have spent worrying about things, it's just shove that worry away and just get on with it. So how do you overcome to this day? Because I have a worry, Jean. How do you uh, manage it now? I tell myself, just get on with it. I tell myself that, you know, does this really warrant this time or should you just move on? Or one of the things I do is I talk to someone I trust really quickly rather than letting it stew and I move on. So I deal with it and move on. Yeah, there's nothing like getting that worry that you keep inside in your your mind, getting mm-hmm. it out because that immediately helps you get perspective too. Mm-hmm. What about the best advice you've been given? The best advice I have been given was don't go by other people's definition of success, create your own. And that has been 
unbelievably important at many different parts of my life. And as a woman in business too, that's been hugely important because the traditional, and by traditional I mean male ways of looking at things, is what's your turnover, how many staff have you got, all of these kind of measurements. And they're um, important, but at different times of your life or at all times, they're not the most important. Sometimes the most important definition of success for yourself, have I got enough time to do the other creative pursuits I wanted to do? Have I got enough time to go skiing every year if I want to? Or the things that are most important to you are, am I creating a really great place to go to work? Am I, as a leader, creating a place for other people to thrive? If my profit isn't as great, but we are doing incredible work and getting great results, is that more important than slavishly driving turnover and profitability? Those, I think, are hugely important questions. And that one question, come up with your own definition for success, which can change at different parts of your life, to me has been the most important question. So talking of your own definition of success, Mm -hmm. what does success look like to you? Success to me is about making a positive difference to other people. If I am enabling people to do whatever they want to do, that to me is success. And that comes from doing great work or bringing out the best in someone or giving them the opportunities. And one of the things I see is that we all feel the need to be these neat packages to present to the world like we know what we're doing and that we're resolved and all of those kind of things. But the truth is for every single one of us that we go through messy times and they can be small times and big times, but that messiness is actually part of the journey to getting clarity. And so often we sit there and we're in panels where we see beautifully groomed people with resolved opinions and so forth. And everyone thinks we've all got ourselves together all the time. And the truth is that no one does and that we are all messy sometimes. And then in our thinking, that's part of the process to getting there. And for me personally, I have very messy hair and it's no no it's <laughs> so, it's your hair it's just a- yeah but you know I always grew up surrounded by all these girls with very straight neat hair and yeah. mine was always all over the place and I always saw it as a kind of not a great thing that I wasn't a neat bundle but now I see it as a really great thing because I actually think it gives you it's liberating to you know be slightly messy some of the time and it and, makes you stand out and it makes it makes you stand out But I've been at a lot of events recently where I've talked about messy being a necessary stage of getting to clarity in your world about big things and small things. And I think that it has enormous resonance because not being messy puts a lot of pressure on ourselves. And I'm not suggesting we all want to stay messy, but it is part of the journey of getting to clarity to be unsure and not know. Yeah, so it's about accepting things will be messy. Yeah. And it's pretty important too, isn't it? Because just as we all have these glossy magazine images of what success and what life should look like, Mm -hmm. it means that sometimes, speaking personally anyway, you know, I think when you're in a messy moment where there isn't that clarity or you're just feeling like you're just not at the top of your game even – 
you feel a great discomfort and you feel you shouldn't be there. But the point you're making is sometimes it's exactly where you need to be. Is that right? That's exactly right. And what we find on mental walks is often the issues that people come to talk about, that what they need is a conversation to help them manoeuvre through the mess. Yeah. Yeah. Mess is good. I've always said that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, going by our office, that would be right. (laughs) Well, Bobby, it's been such a joy talking to you, as always, and it's wonderful to be able to share this conversation with our listeners. If our listeners wanted to find out more about you, about MyLab Media, Mentor Walks, the Cartier Initiative Programme, where would they go? They can go to LinkedIn. They'll find me on LinkedIn. They can go to the MyLab website, which is mylab.co. They can go to the MentorWalks website, which is mentorwalks.com.au. And they can go to the Cartier Women's Initiative site. Just Google that. Fantastic. Well, we'll put all of those things on the show notes page. Thank you. Well, it just leaves me to say, again, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your messiness and (laughs) your wonderful, wonderful journey. It's been such a joy. And we are so excited to see where you go next. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Indeed. I just love Bobby's authenticity and sense of humour, don't you? Yeah, I sure do. That was hilarious when she answered your question about her toughest moment. Yeah, she's so humble and yet she is such a formidable operator. And I have to say, I don't think that question was my finest hour either. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I love that bit about her being messy. It's just so important to remember that, that everybody is messy some of the time. Yeah. Well, that's this episode done and dusted. Stay tuned for our next episode, A How To, and it's about how to get through these times in the best possible way. Yeah, I'm really excited about this one. We've asked all of our previous podcast guests for their top advice in how to get through the weird world that we're living in right now and for the coming months. So don't miss this one. Subscribe on our website to be sure you know when it lands. Ciao for now. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.